Well, good morning, Four Corners. I hope that you just love that song. What not that the message of the Christian life? Isn't that what we are gathered here today to do, and just to bring glory to Christ? How, how could we ever desire to have any glory for ourselves when there is this glorious Christ, this beautiful, magnificent Christ? Over the last two weeks, we've looked at the various ways in which Isaac, in the book of Genesis, is presented like his father Abraham. And we are now uh, in Genesis 26. We've been in Genesis 26 for the last couple of weeks. And in case you're visiting with us maybe for the first time this week, we are in a series on the book of Genesis. We're going all the way through, and we're just a little over halfway at this point. Isaac is like Abraham. We've covered in the last couple of weeks. He's like Abraham in his friendship with God, his faith in God, and his frailty before God. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. He's presented as uh, one who walks with God, who knows God intimately, has God's revelation, his presence, and his promises. And he trusts in the Lord. He does what the Lord commands him to do, like his father Abraham before him had done. But we also see that like his dad, he is imperfect for sure. And so he's feeble in his faith. He stumbles And we saw that with his lie there uh, in uh, chapter 26. And he is like Abraham also in the prosperity, the provisions, and the peace in the land that were granted to him by the Lord. So the Lord had given these things as we walked through the life of Abraham beginning in chapter 12. We saw that the Lord provided these things for Abraham. Prosperity. Various provisions, necessary things. We saw that with a well. We saw that with a burial site. We also saw peace in the land that the Lord provided for Abraham so that he was at peace with those in the land so that he could flourish in the land of promise. And that's also what we have seen with his son Isaac. So to sum it up, where we've been in the last couple of weeks in preparation for where we're going this morning, like Abraham... Isaac is presented as the blessed man who is in covenant relationship with God. God is continuing and confirming the covenant in chapter 26. And it's really fascinating when you see it as you, as you come to various portions. And one of the things that preaching through a book does and, and, and listening to preaching going, going through a book does is it helps us put together the parts a little bit better than maybe we did before. And so maybe you've read through this portion of Genesis before and it just seemed kind of choppy or it seemed like, okay, we're with Abraham and now we skipped over Isaac, it appears. We're with Jacob and Esau. Now, okay, Isaac, and then we're skipping back. Why the details that are being presented? Why in this order? Why these characters in this way? And what we saw in the last couple of weeks is that chapter 26 of Genesis is meant to be a very quick replay of the faithfulness of God to Abraham in the life of Isaac. So in the space of one chapter, we essentially get all of God's faithfulness to Abraham from chapter 12 all the way up in one chapter for his son Isaac. So we get to the end of chapter 26. And we are naturally left with a question. If Isaac is presented as the blessed man 
in chapter 26, just like his father Abraham in the preceding chapters, then when we come to the end of chapter 26, we reach a question. Who is going to be the next recipient of the blessing? And how? How is that going to work itself out? And that's the title for the sermon this morning is the next recipient of the blessing. And to look at that, we're going to go to Genesis 26, verses 34, all the way up to chapter 27, verse 46. That's quite a chunk. Um, You remember when we looked at the servant of uh, Abraham and how he had gone to back to Abraham's people to get a wife for his son Isaac. And we looked at 60 some verses. That was quite a chunk to read together, quite a chunk to go through. Well, not quite that bad today, but today we are going to cover quite a chunk because this story really needs to be treated as one unit. It really needs to be treated together. So Genesis 26, verse 34, all the way to 27, verse 46. Today we return to the two twin brothers, Jacob And Esau. We were introduced to these two sons of Isaac, these two grandsons of Abraham, back in chapter 25. And to the question of which one will get the blessing, we've actually already been given the answer. That answer came to us in chapter 25, verse 23, in an oracle from the Lord to the mother of these two boys. And this is what the Lord said. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And here's the key telling us who the blessing is going to go to next. The older shall serve the younger. So we know that the younger of the two twins, now, I mean, we're talking about younger by literally a few seconds even, it appears, because he's got his brother's heel But the younger of the two twins, the one who comes out of the womb second, is going to be greater than the one who comes out first. So we've already been given a hint in the narrative as to who is going to be the next recipient of the blessing. But what chapter 27 does is it shows you how that plays out. This division between the two sons, Jacob and Esau, which the Lord had Uh, prophesied to Rebekah, this division between them has been evident all along. They were divided in the womb as they were battling it out, and Jacob comes out second, grasping Esau's heel. They were divided in the favoritism of their parents. They were divided in their temperaments and personalities, and they were divided in their adult life. As we saw, Jacob managed to cunningly take Esau's birthright. And we read there that Esau traded his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew. Verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. So that's where we've been so far with Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob and Esau. We've been given a lot of information about this blessing going from Abraham to Isaac. We've been introduced to Jacob and Esau. And now these two streams of narrative are going to come together. The blessing... And these two sons in chapter 27. So now we come to one of the most famous 
and dramatic stories in Genesis. It, it has kind of the dramatic tension, really, of chapter 22. You remember when we were in chapter 22, how uh, Abraham was commanded by the Lord to go and to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we saw the tension and the drama. You could feel that story unfolding, especially as you can empathize with what Abraham is going through, and even Isaac. This, likewise, is a very dramatic story. And it's crucial in pushing forward, just as Genesis 22 was, it's crucial in pushing forward the overarching story of the book of Genesis. And so if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Genesis 26, verse 34 to 27, verse 46, the end of that chapter. This is the word of God. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Be'eri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat and that my soul may bless you before I die. A quick note there is remember back in 25, we were introduced to Esau. He's an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. And Jacob is an indoors kind of guy. He's more of a domestic man. Verse five. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before, before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Verse 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. Verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. I, I, don't, I don't even want to begin to figure out how, what, that, what that looked like. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Verse 18, so he went in to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who who are you, my son? 
And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy, like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven, And of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. This is pretty dramatic. Stuff. Imagine uh, Israelite children sitting around hearing this story. What happens next? What happens next? Verse 31. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently. And said, who who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then? Can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. 
Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? You can go ahead and be seated. I know that's a bit of a marathon reading. But as you can see, it really does hang together and is one long, rich, dramatic story. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his blessing, and ask that he would help this text to come alive for us, that he would show us uh, himself in it, and that he would show us what he requires of us, what he calls us to through it. Let's pray. Our sovereign heavenly Father, you are the God of history. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We glory in their descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning. We cry out to you, God, that all we have is Christ. All glory be to Christ. And Father, we are delighted this morning as we come to these ancient texts that we are reading our very own story. Father, we take great delight in the truth that we too are offspring of Abraham, that we too are blessed, that we too have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that this has been done in Christ Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, has been seated at your right hand. Every principality and power, every being, visible and invisible, placed under his pierced feet. And we are in Christ. And one day when Christ appears, we will appear with him also in glory, living forever, enjoying all the fulfillment of these blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, what a story you have for us in the Bible. What a wondrous story of your greatness, your power, your providence, and of your love for people like us. And so we gather here this morning by faith. We want to hear from you, Father. We have heard from you through your word. Now, Lord, would you bless the exposition of your word, the explaining of this text, just as in the days of Nehemiah, that the sense would be made plain to your people and that we would hear your voice in your word as your word is is understood and that we would be changed by it from one degree of glory into another as we behold the Christ of Scripture, as we behold Christ in Scripture. 
Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us in bringing us here this morning. We thank you that we get to hear your word read. What a privilege, Lord. And we pray that we would see it that way. And that we would pause right now in our minds from all of our cares, from all of the thorniness of our lives, the distractions and cares and pursuits of riches and all the things that drive us and occupy our minds, that we would stop and listen to the voice of the Most High. God, would you be with us, we ask. Do what only you can do in our hearts, for we are weak and frail in every way. We ask you, we beg you, for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first, well, let me say this. You can look in your bulletin and you can see the three things that we'll focus uh, on this morning, the three things to focus our attention. So the first is the deceitful son. And then secondly, we'll look at the dejected son. And then finally, we'll look at the divided sons. We'll kind of pull them together and look at the end, the aftermath of the story. So the deceitful son, the dejected son, and the divided sons. First, let's look at the deceitful son. I'm not going to reread all of these verses, but we will go through them and pull out those that help to carry the story forward. Probably the first thing we would say about this story. If you just come to this story, or maybe you've read it before, probably the one detail that sticks out in your mind the most is because that's at the center of this account, is that Jacob deceived his elderly, blind father. I mean, if we are to come later to the law and look at the Ten Commandments, we see the commandment, honor your father and your mother. I think we would all agree that this is one very crystal clear example of the opposite of honoring your father. Uh, He exploits his father's weakness, his father's age, and his father's blindness. It's really quite a sad picture. Here is this man who, who is hearing his way and feeling his way and smelling his way to the truth. And we have this son who is in every way disguising the truth, perverting the truth, who is lying and lying to and dishonoring his weak and vulnerable father. It is a sad, sad story. He is doing this in order to get the blessing. We have two teams, two teams. We've already talked about this. We have team Jacob And team Esau. Remember when we looked at the favoritism back in chapter 25? uh, Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. And Isaac's favorite is Esau. Team Jacob on one hand and team Esau on the other. And here what we have in this story is team Jacob trying to get the upper hand. That's what we get especially in the first part of the story. This is really a sad picture of family life. We, need, we, we can't just skip over that. As we think about our own lives and our own families, we can't ignore the fact that this is quite a sad picture of family, family life. And it's interesting that throughout this entire ordeal, the family is never presented together. It's really interesting. You've got, you've got Esau and Isaac together, and then you have Jacob pretending to be Esau together with his father. You've got Jacob with his mother, but you never get a family outing. 
You never get going to get ice cream together or playing in the yard together or sitting in the floor together, watching a movie together. They are totally fragmented, this broken family. And it is the result, of course, of favoritism. And I won't rehash that, but we talked about that several weeks ago, the destructive power of favoritism. And it's just another reminder as we dock here on Jacob and Esau again, just another reminder to us as parents that we ought to do everything we can with God's help not to show favoritism towards certain ones of our children. Regardless of why that favoritism might be, regardless of what might motivate that favoritism. We will come back to Esau and Isaac in a moment, but for now, I want to focus our attention on Rebecca and Jacob. You really have to sort of treat these, these different scenes, and this is the way I've chosen to treat it. I want to look first at Rebecca and Jacob, because it is their activity that takes up the majority of the first portion up to verse 29. Rebecca overhears Isaac telling Esau to go on a hunt and bring him back some tasty food so he can bless him. And she immediately springs into action. Rebecca is portrayed here as quite an incredible woman. I mean, she really is. The good and the bad all thrown in there together. I mean, this is, this is quite an incredible person, really an impressive person. She's portrayed as a woman of resolve, energy, and strength. She is... Portrayed as wise and shrewd, but also she is portrayed as a woman of intense control and manipulation. Both sides are present here. She goes to Jacob and gives him instructions to get two young goats. Now, how in the world she can make goats taste like wild game is, you know, a little bit of a mystery. But she knows her husband. She's cooked for him many times. She knows his taste buds. She knows what satisfies his hunger, what he likes to eat. And so she's able to pull this off. Two young goats so that she can prepare a meal that he loves. Then Jacob will go to his blind father and pretend to be his brother Esau so that he can get the blessing. That's the plan. She takes charge. And issues commands to her grown son, her 40-year-old son, 40-year-old plus son. I think there's a little bit of an application here for us in, in terms of the destructive power that a controlling mother can have over a son. Just a bit of a side note, but we perhaps have seen that in our own lives, in the lives of people we know, in the lives of maybe uh, family members what this can do in the life of a family. So we see that she's giving him orders. She's telling him to obey her, a grown man. Verse eight, now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. It's one of the few times you get, you get the verb command in, in the mouth of a female. This is, this is very, very explicit. I'm telling you what to do. You better do it. And later in the conversation... When Jacob challenges by saying that he is smooth and his brother is hairy and that he, that he may get caught and bring a curse on himself, Rebecca says in verse 13, listen to the words again, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. 
She has taken charge of her son Jacob to carry out her plan. The scene ends with a flurry of activity from Rebecca. It's very interesting. I mean, she is the one who prepares the food and who gives it to Jacob. She literally puts it in his hands. She is the one who puts goat skins on his hands and his neck and wraps him in one of Esau's smelly garments. She's driving this thing. She is taking charge. She is making this thing Happen. She reminds us a little bit of the younger Rebecca who sees this man who needs his camels watered and she goes and waters 10 camels. And how long that would have taken? Probably hours for her to go and water all these camels. This is a very energetic, thoughtful person. But what about Jacob? I'm not going to put it all on Rebecca. Now Jacob is ready to pull off this great trick. Verse 18, so he went, no, mom, I could never do this to my dad. I could never do this thing. I cannot obey you at the expense of honoring my father. I can't do that, mom. That's not what Jacob says at all. He went looking absolutely ridiculous. Of course, it doesn't matter because his father can't see him anyway. He went into his father and said, my father, And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And what follows in this narrative is a stacking up of lies. And not just insinuations, not just kind of, you know, uh, uh, implied lies. These are very explicit lies. Are you really my son, Esau? I am. Very, very explicit lies. And they're just stacking up. Right here in this passage, lying upon lying upon lying. And worst of all, and maybe you noticed this as we were reading through the text, worst of all, he is taking God's name in vain. Did you notice that? Verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly? The food, that is. How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, listen to this. Because the Lord your God granted me success. So he, he, he lies, impacted, this is taking the name of God in vain. He, he says that it was God who, he, he folds God into his lie. God did it for me, dad. God uh, enabled me to go out there and quickly find some game. And I've brought it to you now. It was, it was God who granted me this success. It was the, the Lord your God, Father. Isaac is unsure because he hears the voice of Jacob. He's grown up with, these boys have grown up in his home. What parent? I mean, every time I uh, talk to my brother on the phone, I hear, well, we sound similar. And we see that with with, uh, siblings. There's There's a bit of a similar sound, similar accent. But Isaac still hears the voice of Jacob. He is his father. He, he knows his boys. And he hears what sounds much like Jacob, not, not Esau. But the goat skins pass the field test and the garment passes the smell test. And you, you get the impression as you're reading through this and commentators, that they talk about to what, ex, to what extent Isaac is, is, is irresponsible here. But I get the sense that Isaac is doing everything he can to ensure that this is, in fact, his son Esau. I mean, he's given every test he can. He can't see, but he's listening, he's feeling, and he's smelling. 
trying to get to the truth. But Isaac becomes convinced finally by the smell test. He smells his son. He smells his son after he comes in out of the field. The smell of maybe grass, cut grass. You know that that smell that you have after you cut the grass and you come inside? And your wife tells you you better go take a shower very quickly. That's the kind of smell that's probably coming out of this, this garment. And of course for Isaac, he loves that smell. That's the smell of his son. And that's also the smell of what he's about to eat. So Isaac becomes convinced and he blesses Jacob in the place of Esau. And that's where we get verse 27. If you want to look there, verses 27 to 29. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven. And of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, what do we make of this blessing? This blessing that moves from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. But we're going we're gonna to hear this reworded at the beginning of chapter 28. And so we'll get a little bit more content to it. But if we're going to sort of summarize what we have here, these are the words of prosperity, superiority, and continuity. That, that just as Abraham and Isaac were blessed in what they had, materially speaking, so too will Jacob. Prosperity. Superiority. Others will bow down to him. And this goes back, of course, to promises to Abraham that kings would come from him. And then continuity, this at the very end, he says, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the the same language given to Abraham back in chapter 12. And so even with this phrase, we're brought all the way back to the beginning of this story. We're brought all the way back to chapter 12 when God came to this family and began to form a covenant relationship with them. Clearly, this is a a continuation of all that has come before but there are also words pointing to the future king. Now, this is really interesting because there's, some, there's a lot of spiritual content sort of veiled in these verses. These verses seem very earthly. They seem just a, a blessing that he would have a nice life and have some, some grain and, and some wine. He would just live in, in, in maybe a, a lush kind of way. But there's something deeper here. And we see that in Numbers 24, 9. In Numbers 24... You have this weird guy, Balaam, and he's prophesying in the future about the future coming king, the future king. I see him not yet talking about the Christ. And you can go and we, we read some of the, uh, the prophecy of, of Balaam during Christmas time. We talk about a star rising. I see him not yet. But in those prophecies of Balaam in Numbers 24, we get this language about the future Christ. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. 
And so what that tells us is this language that we have going back to Abraham, it doesn't, just, it doesn't just pull Jacob and the blessing given to Jacob back to Abraham to suggest continuity. It also points forward to the future king whom Balaam is seeing, the lion, the great one. There is much packed into this blessing, and it goes to Jacob, not Esau. So what are we to make of this behavior? Let's reflect on all of this for a moment. What are we to make of this behavior on the part of Rebekah and her favorite son, Jacob? And I would sort of, I would encapsulate the whole idea like this, or this whole pack of ideas. I would put it this way. What we have in Rebekah and Jacob is faith in promise without faith in providence. Faith in promise without faith in providence. Rebecca and probably Jacob knew the oracle, knew what God had said. Rebecca believes what God said. Rebecca believes the word of God. She is a woman of faith. She trusts in the God of Abraham. Jacob and probably Rebecca knew Esau had sold his birthright. And a couple of chapters ago, we talked about, or when we were in chapter 25, we talked about how Jacob was trying so hard, he was doing everything he could to get a hold of this birthright, which I said suggested faith. Rebecca believes the oracle of the Lord. And Jacob, whether he knows of the oracle or not, believes that this birthright is worth having, and he'll do anything to get it. So this tells us that both Rebecca and Jacob are those who believe. They are believers. They believe in the promise. And when Rebecca quotes Isaac at the beginning, she says that the blessing would be before the Lord. It's really interesting because she quotes Isaac. When she goes to Jacob, she says, listen, this is what Isaac said to Esau. That his soul would bless him and he's going to have him come in and bless him. But she uses that language before the Lord. Well, if you go back and you, you listen to what Isaac said, Isaac did not say that. What that tells us, it's a very important little, little detail. What it tells us is that in the mind of Rebekah, when Isaac does this blessing, he will be doing that before the Lord. That this blessing that will be given is of great import and weight. So what we are seeing on the part of Rebekah and Jacob is faith. Faith in the God of Abraham as well as a valuing of all that is associated with the covenant. Well, that's the good side. That's the faith part. What about the distrust part? They are trying to force things through by themselves. Here's one thing that we can know. No matter what Rebecca and Jacob would have done, God would not have allowed Esau to get that birthright. We know that. That was God's oracle to Rebekah. It was not God's will for the younger to serve the older, but for the older to serve the younger. That was God's electing purposes, Paul tells us in Romans 9. But rather than trusting God's providence to make these things happen in his own time and in his own way, what do we have? We have a lack of faith that God will do according to his plan, a willingness to cross any moral boundary to make the right thing happen. What about us in that regard? Let me say that again. A willingness to cross any moral boundary in order that the right thing might happen. 
This is the end justifies the means kind of living. This is saying that as long as the target is right, it doesn't matter how I hit it. What matters is that I get to that end. And that's what we see with Rebecca and her son Jacob. But here, we are also reminded of God's grace. What we learn here is we come to the genealogy of Matthew and we see Jacob's name there. Right there in the genealogy of Matthew. And all the other names, the, the crazy stories. I mean, you could go through the genealogy of Matthew. I've thought about doing this sometimes. Going through the genealogy of Matthew and just preach sermons on all the little bits there of the stories that are represented in that genealogy. So you could just see all the stepping stones of sin all throughout that genealogy. All the ways that the line to Christ was tainted with sinfulness. What is that telling us? That everyone in the line of the deliverer needs the deliverer. Everyone, including us. Not a single person enters heaven, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's only one way to heaven. And it's through this perfect Christ. Not through being a hero of the faith. Not through doing this or that but through what Christ did on the cross. Everyone needs this deliverer, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the deceitful son. Now let's look at the dejected son. We now turn our attention away from team Jacob. So we've been camping out there with team Jacob. We looked at Rebecca, what's going on in her mind, what she's doing. We looked at Jacob, what's going on in his mind, what he's doing. Now we turn over to team Esau. And we have the dejected son and the shocked, trembling father. Whoa! What just happened? Trembled violently, the text says. Here we have to begin with Isaac's favoritism. And we see once again in this text that this favoritism of Isaac is driven by appetite. It's really sad. When you look at the father is the The father and the husband is the head of the home. The home rises or falls by the father or the husband. We talked about that when we went through Ephesians years ago, about three years ago. We went through Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 4. And we had a number of sermons on that passage on the family. And we talked about how how important the role of the father and the husband is in the home. The husband is said there to be the head of his wife. And then we are told when we get to chapter 6, fathers, do this with your children. Do not provoke them to anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are responsible for the raising of their children, ultimately. Fathers are responsible for the health of the marriage, ultimately. Husbands, I should say, are responsible, ultimately. And what we see here are these many chinks in Isaac's armor. We have to begin with his favoritism, driven by his appetite. Look at verses 3 to 4. It's subtle there, but it's there. Verses 3 to 4, he says to Esau, Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food. There it is. Such as I love. And bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Get one last good meal out of the deal. Isaac is a man whose soul is too connected to his senses. 
His partiality comes from his palate. The physically blind Isaac has become spiritually blind to anything other than his favorite and his food. His favorite son and his tasty treats. One commentator, Gordon Wynnum, describes it this way. Isaac's sensuality is more powerful than his theology. Sensuality is more powerful than his theology. Why would we say that? I mean, really, he has, just has a favorite son. He likes food. I mean, a lot of us like food, right? It's not sinful to like food. We would imagine that every good chef likes food, and that's why he's able to do what he does, to make delicious food, because he knows what delicious food tastes like and how to replicate that. So why would we say all of this about Isaac? I mean, really, are we overblowing this? Well, we don't know for sure whether or not Isaac knew about the divine oracle or the despised blessing. A number of commentators, in fact, most say that Isaac would have certainly known about this uh, oracle from God. But it seems to me that that's not clear from the text. When we go back, God, uh, Rebecca inquires of the Lord and the Lord said to her, that's all we get. And so we can assume that, well, of course, Rebecca would have told Isaac. Of course, Rebecca would have told Isaac that the younger will serve or the older will serve the younger. But there's, there's no clear evidence for that. But maybe we don't know whether he knew about that oracle or whether he knew about the despised birthright. Do we know, what hap- do we know that he knew what happened between Jacob and Esau? That, that Esau sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of stew? We don't know. But we do know that he should have seen Esau's character. I mean, he's with him a lot, right? He's his father. That's his favorite son. He should have seen his son's character. Hebrews 12, 16 calls Esau an unholy or godless man because he sold his birthright for a single meal. And we would certainly expect that his character would have shown through in many ways throughout his life. Certainly, we say, Isaac would have seen that his son was a godless man, right? Many ways. There are many individual ways that that would have shown itself to his father. What's going on here? Even more. We are told in chapter 26, verses 34 to 35. Let's not forget about those verses before this story unfolds. What are we told, verses 34 to 35, that Esau marries women from the land. This is so important. This is such an important detail as we move into this story. He marries women of the land and more than one. This is a man driven by his appetites. This puts him in. Relation or association with the line of Cain. Genesis 4.19, and Lamech took two wives. Remember, that's the first polygamist. We've got Cain, the wicked one who's going to kill his brother. What are we about to read about Esau? You see the, the relationship, the association that's being made here. Esau's the one who takes for himself two wives of the land, and he's the one who wants to kill his brother. There's an association here going back to Cain. He is indeed being presented as the godless man. Isaac would have known all the trouble Abraham went through to secure him a wife from his own people and not from the people of the land. They were a godless people being prepared for destruction. Isaac, of all people, knew how important it was that this line be pure in that respect. 
all the, the trouble that Abraham had gone through to secure his, his precious bride, Rebekah. And how he's out meditating in the field. And here they come, coming back, and, and she sees him, and he sees her. All of that seems to be out the window. Esau shows no concern for this at all. His taking women of the land shows that he is nothing like Abraham. And even more importantly, it shows that he cares nothing for the promises given to Abraham. All that stuff about the land and what God will do later and how he'll bring his people back and he'll judge this people. Oh, whatever. Esau has no regard for any of that. Esau is an earthly-minded man rather than a heavenly-minded man. Esau sees only what satisfies the flesh. This is the mark of an unbeliever. An earthly-minded person who sees only the here and the now and the pleasures and the passions and what the appetites want. That's it. And this is also true of those of us who are believers when we fall into the flesh, when we sow to the flesh. It is being earthly-minded. Paul says, by contrast, in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above where Christ is. Meditating always on heavenly things. It is when we become earthly. And all we're thinking about is the moving parts of our lives and what we need and what we want and how we are ordered and so forth. That is when we are the most like Esau. Even as Christians. That is when we are sowing and sowing and sowing to the flesh. Galatians 5. And we reap death when we sow to the flesh. We get the impression that Isaac is oblivious to all of this. And I think that reminds us that our passions and preferences can blind us. How is that happening in your life, even today? Your passions and your preferences in this earthly life blinding you to spiritual realities, blinding you to greater truths, to what God is doing, blinding you to his providence, blinding you to a right assessment of the spiritual life of your own children. One of the things that's very important as a pastor when parents come to me and they say, hey, we would like for you to baptize our child, is that the parent is able to think through and talk through real prolonged development of spiritual fruit to demonstrate that, in fact, regeneration has occurred. Unregenerate people ought not to be baptized. So it's important that a parent is tuned in, prayerful. What is going on in the heart of my child? Not naive, not oblivious, not blind. Not concerned that their children be baptized simply so they can say their children are baptized or check that box, but truly engaged with the heart of their child. It's important as a pastor, as elders, that we inculcate that into the parents among us. Isaac is oblivious to the spiritual state of his son. And we can see the character of Esau. In how he responds to Jacob's trick and to Isaac's comment that the blessing given to Jacob is irrevocable. When he realizes that Jacob has taken the blessing, he is utterly dejected and crushed. This is what we read, verse 34. He cried out with an exceeding, listen to this language. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. I mean, he is whimpering. 
over this. Verse 38, and Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Tears all in his beard. This burly man just turning into a puddle. What's interesting here is why he's weeping. Why is he weeping? Why is he so distraught? This is, so, this is such an important clue. Verse 38, Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing? My father, bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. Any blessing will do for this earthly man. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to go back to Abraham. It doesn't have to come through his father Isaac. This blessing doesn't have to have anything to do with the the future seed who will crush the head of the serpent. It doesn't have to have anything to do with future kings or a nation in which God reigns or an everlasting covenant between God and man in which God will be God to you and you will be his people. Any blessing will do. I just want something, Dad. Can you give me something? Esau is a materialist. He wants things and pleasures, not the God of promise. Doesn't care for those things. But there is only one blessing here. And what Esau receives is an anti-blessing, a picture of his future in subjection to his brother and away from God's blessing. Esau's attitude to all of this is to blame Jacob. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. But it's interesting that according to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 16 to 17, Esau forfeited the blessing when he sinfully gave up his birthright. So Esau's assessment is Jacob did this to me. God's assessment is You did this to yourself because you are a godless and holy man. Esau refuses to see God's hand in all of this and he refuses to look inward at his own sin. Instead, Jacob, my brother, has done all of this to me, this great injustice. And that leads us to our final point this morning, which is the divided Sons, verses 41 to 46. In these verses, we get the aftermath of the blessing story. And there is one word that captures all of it. Division. Verse 33 of chapter 25. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And if there's one word that really encapsulates what we're seeing here in these final verses, verses 41 to 46, it's division. These sons are now being divided. Division between sons and between nations, Israel and Edom. From Jacob will come the nation of Israel. From Esau will come the nation of Edom. This is just the beginning of this enmity, hostility that will go forth throughout the Old Testament. You can read about it in various places. Like Cain, as I said before, Esau now turns to anger and murder. Rather than submitting to God's electing and gracious purposes, he turns to rage And revenge. And now Rebecca is scheming as to how she can physically separate her son from Esau to protect him. You see that? So so they're separated by this hatred and hostility in the heart of Esau towards his brother Jacob. 
And now they're about to be separated as Rebekah is figuring out a way that she can get Jacob away from Esau so that Esau won't kill him and then vengeance will be taken on Esau and she'll lose both sons in one day. Her plan? Make it about marriage. The wives of Esau have been a problem for both Rebekah and Isaac. So if she can get Isaac to recognize that, he will agree and send Jacob away. So she wants Jacob away primarily so that he's not killed. But she goes to Isaac and makes it about marriage so that Isaac himself will send Jacob away to get a wife among her people. But what we find later in the narrative is that this short stay turns into 20 years. Rebecca sends Jacob away thinking he's going to be away for a few days. A week, month, maybe. Ooh, month, that'd be hard. It's her favorite, it's her boy. But he's going to be away for a short time. And then she's going to get him back. And he's not going to be killed. And it's just going to be great. She's going to be grandma. She's got hopes. It's going to be great. But the truth is that he stays there for 20 years. And this is probably the last time Rebecca and Jacob see each other. That's the consequence. She doesn't see her precious son again in her life. This is the end of that story. And on top of that, Jacob will live a life of trouble. At the end of his life, at the end of Genesis, Jacob will say to the Pharaoh that his days have been short and full of trouble. Jacob lived a trouble-filled life. Much of that going back to the sins that he committed here in this passage. He was deceived by his uncle and his own sons. Remember when his sons kill uh, or, or they sell Joseph into slavery and they dip his garment in blood and they bring it back and they say, Joseph's dead. Joseph's dead. They lie to him. And he has to live under the cloud of that for the rem- almost the remainder of his days. His uncle Laban will deceive him so that he works for him for 20 years. We'll read about that soon. All of this tells us there are consequences when we go at it ourselves. So hear this, people of God. There are consequences when we do it our own way. When we take matters into our own hands. There are consequences for that that we have to endure. So pray to the Lord and ask him for mercy. And be intentional about our choices day by day. Walking in the spirit that we will not sow to the flesh. That we will not justify the means because of the end. As we close, I want you to notice two things briefly. First, God's plan stands no matter what. That, this is an incredible God. This is a God whose plan is absolutely sovereign over human sin. No sin can thwart the plan of God. No human will can thwart the will of God. This is a sovereign God who will bring his plan to fruition in the lives of people of all time, of all places. Second, everywhere we look in this story, we see sin, don't we? We see Isaac's sin, we see Rebecca's sin, Jacob's sin, Esau's sin. It's just sin, the whole story. It's filled with sin. It's dripping with sin. What does that tell us? 
tells us there really are no heroes in the Bible. There is only one hero, one sinless person, one lamb seated on a throne, and his praises will be the song of every mouth in heaven throughout eternity. My wife Jennifer and I were reading just the other night from Psalm 51, and it's David's confession, and Mark Grasso had preached on this some time ago. It's David's confession and prayer to the Lord for his mercy after he had done that horrible thing in having adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife, and then having that man sent to the front lines to have him killed. Horrible story, one of the worst sins in the Bible. And there's David crying out to the Lord for mercy. And one of the things we discussed was, you oftentimes hear people say, and I've said this before too, and sure, it's fascinating, Man, when I get to heaven, I want to see Abraham, and and I'm going to see Moses, and I'm going to see David, and I'm going to see Peter. You won't be concerned about that. You see, there are no greats in heaven. There is no hall of fame in heaven. In heaven, there are only blood-bought sinners. You will not want to see Moses in heaven. You will not care to see David in heaven. You will be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, as will David as will Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and every other person who is present in heaven. There will be one glory that fills heaven, and it is the glory of this Christ we just sung about a little while ago. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your word. Would it settle in our hearts? And as we meet for group this week, would we meditate upon it Would we grow deeper in our study of it? And would you apply its truth to our lives? We are constantly in need of your grace, Father. Would you do this work in us, which only your spirit can do? In Jesus' name, amen.